You are listening to an official podcast from Kings of Europe. Welcome everyone, and uh, this is a very special uh, Kings of Europe episode. We got uh, a good friend of ours, James Rose, coming to the show, and this has been a long time coming. We had to uh, cancel due to uh, hurricanes, uh, due to other other work things work related. It's just been uh, it's been natural disasters. It's been a lot of different things, but we finally, finally, finally uh, have him on the line. Uh, James, uh, how are you doing today, sir? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for the nice introduction. It's finally nice to speak to you. Absolutely, same here. Same here. We've been uh, at, we've been looking forward to this for quite some time because you are an expert in some of the things that I find the most fascinating about football, and in one particular area that is Dutch football. Uh, a, a fascinating country, small, with a number of legendary players that have come from this land. Uh, uh, the, the obviously the three consecutive European Cups by Ajax with uh, Johan, Johan Cruyff. And just, I want to talk to you today just uh, a little bit about the Dutch national team. And uh, having grown up in Germany, I, I kept a close eye on them. They were always sort of my number two team uh, okay. behind the German national team. I was cheering for them in the 2010 World Cup final. I was going to cheer for them had Germany not made it to the final in Brazil and had the uh, Netherlands gotten past their semifinal matchup against Argentina. I've always, always, always had a love for Dutch football, especially uh, the players. And some of the heroes, obviously, from my time growing up would be Dennis Bergkamp, Ruud van Nistelrooy, uh, Marco van Basten, uh, Robin van Persie, obviously. So... Um, Obviously, one of my favorite players being an Inter supporter is Wesley Snyder. Uh, yeah. So, just tell everybody a little bit quickly about yourself and how 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 you um, how you came to be an expert with uh, the Dutch national team and and sort of in Dutch football. Okay, that's fine. I'm originally from the UK. I emigrated to the Netherlands more than twelve years ago, and I live and work in Amsterdam. Uh, for the last two years, I've been able to interview professional players and managers on a regular basis. I've interviewed about uh, more than 50 professional players and managers now, and read, uh, listeners can read my interviews on my Twitter feed at James Rowe NL, and also on World Football Index and FootballAnnual.com. And uh, yeah, 12 years of, of watching Ajax firsthand and, and keeping tabs on all the different teams and and um, and getting to know all the news and really submerging myself in everything, also the local language too. It's allowed me to um, to part uh, to part my knowledge onto many different podcasts, and uh, you always keep learning. And it's <laughs> nice to uh, it's it's nice to give people the latest news as to what's happening. You've, we timed the podcast well because the Netherlands play Germany on this Saturday in Amsterdam. Yes, that follow that follows a match against Belgium in uh, Brussels on um, on Tuesday the sixteenth. So we timed it well in terms of upcoming international games. Absolutely, we did. That's kind of intentional. <laughs> yeah, well, no, really good. And um, as uh, as listeners might know, Critty, that uh, the Netherlands have failed to qualify for a major tournament since uh, Brazil in two thousand and fourteen. There are signs of life, 
uh, in terms of improvement, in terms of squad selection positions and players. And hopefully that will culminate in the Netherlands qualifying for the Euro 2020, uh, which is the next major international tournament. I, I definitely hope they will be there. It's been, I will say this with all honesty, it has been a very awkward feeling for me as a uh, football supporter, fan, whatever you want to call it, your, my whole life to not have had the Dutch team at the 2016 European Championship or the 2018 World Cup. It was, it was like something, Italy obviously was missing in 2018 as well, uh, this, this past World Cup, but, but for, the, for the Netherlands to miss two big tournaments in a row like that, is just, it's, been a, it's been a huge void. Um, and some of these countries, obviously, like Iceland and such, have filled it, and it's been nice to have whales in there and, and make some noise in 2016, but there's just something about that iconic orange kit and that 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 iconic crest and some of the, the the players and when i when i talk to you and this is one of the things i want to ask you first and foremost when i named you some of these players we'll talk about johan cruyff we'll talk about marco van basten we'll talk about dennis Bergkamp, edwin edwin van der sar uh Ruth gillett um you know ronald coleman these guys uh from from way back in the day all the way frank reichard clarence sedorf when i think of the dutch national team now uh i don't Think of anyone, and I'm sorry, but like the two names that come to mind are Jeannie Wijnaldum and uh, Virgil van Dijk. So yeah. it used to be a who's who in the starting 11 for the Dutch national side. And now that seems to be, there seems to be uh, an issue among even the most hardcore football fans to name the starting 11 for the Netherlands. What's happened as far as this, um, the, the decline from 2014 to 2016 and now to 2018 as far as them not qualified for these major tournaments and star power. Well, it, the answer critic can be best uh, explained in two parts. The first part is that you mentioned some of the world-class uh, household names that have been known through the years. They all had very different characteristics than the current generation and a fantastic will to win and a fantastic will to test themselves in different countries. And they had a skill level and levels of determination, which brought them extremely fine careers. Uh, moving on to the second part, the Netherlands, when they failed to qualify for Euro 2016, they thought it was a complete freak accident. They thought this isn't going to happen again. They were, found themselves in a qualification group with Iceland, Turkey and the Czech Republic. And they lost their opening game in Prague in injury time. And they hobbled through the, uh, the qualification and, and didn't make it in the end. And then the aftermath of that critty was very much of, well, it's to one off. It, it won't happen again. And then the qualification uh, draw was made for the World Cup qualification in Russia, where they found, them, found themselves up against Sweden, Bulgaria and France. And I get the impression they kind of thought that everything was going to be okay. But again, the opening match in, in Solna, they didn't win. And they, uh, they had Danny Blind as their manager, who only had one year experience managing Ajax, and which, was at, which was a long time previously until he was appointed. And behind the, behind the scenes at the Dutch FA, there was a conflict of interest of people wanting to keep their job and, and stay in a cushy job rather than make the best decision for the country. So there was a lot of mess behind the scenes with... Um, giving uh, Danny Blinn too, far too much time and then um, and then Advocat taking over the reins and missing out on qualification. 
Um, they had an opportunity after the after the World Cup in 2014, Chris, to hire one of um, Ronald Koeman or Frank de Boer. Uh, Ronald Koeman or Chrysidink, uh, sorry. And mm-hmm. they chose Chrysidink, who at the time was 71 years old. And um, he was uh, tinkering a lot with the fantastic work that Louis van Gaal did. So it can be traced back to the Dutch FA making the wrong decision back in 2014 after Louis van Gaal. But Koeman has been in charge since February, and you can see signs of life. His mandate was to uh, was to build a squad to be able to compete. And the good thing is, is that every squad for every international period since he's been appointed, you can see players being picked on merit. You can see a, a system coming into play. And if I can just go through a few positions, mm-hmm. if you look at the current squad selected for the matches against Germany and, and Belgium in the next couple of days, you've got um, um, Denzel Dumfries, who plays for PSV. Now, he's 22 years old. He's physically very, very strong. And he's come up through the traditional route of first playing for Sparta Rotterdam, then for Hill and Vane, and then signing for um, for the champions in, um, in PSV. And he's... Um, uh, it's great that he's been included in the squad. He's got an awful lot to give. If you move on to the um, to the uh, midfield, you've got David Brupper, who unfortunately has had to sign off through injury, but he's uh, been playing tremendously for Brighton in the Premier League. And he's a, he's a very technically gifted player. And then if we move on to um, if we move on to the forward line, you've got Quincy Promes, who recently just um, just signed a deal with Spanish side Sevilla. And also uh, Memphis Depay, who's uh, who's really playing some really good football in Lyon in France. And also Steven Bergwijn, who plays for PSV, who's only 21 years of age, but he's got electric pace. So the good news is, is that there are signs of life uh, in terms of the, the, the right players being brought into the squad. You mentioned Ajax. I'd like to mention two players in particular. Frankie de Jong, who's a, a midfield dynamo at the age mm-hmm. of 21, who can pick a pass, a la Wesley Schneider, has been in, included in recent uh, recent squads, which is a good sign. And his club teammate, Matthias de Ligt, who partners Virgil van Dijk in, in central defence, is only 19 years old, Critty, but if you hear him talk and you watch him play live, he belies his years in terms of composure on the ball and off the ball and also in terms of verbal communication. So you can see that the blocks are being built from front to back to, com- to build a competitive team. And uh, there are some very promising signs at the moment. Do you think that it's after 2014 and the success of the World Cup, obviously beating Brazil and finishing in third place, do you think that, that the Netherlands relied too heavily on aging and older stars such as Arjen Robben for too long without, without replacing it? And, and with the, obviously with the youth that you're talking about right now, which sounds like on the upswing, is that what was missing, though, between 2014 and 2016? Yeah, absolutely. Also, due, due to, the, um, to the indecisiveness behind the scenes from the Dutch FA, to appoint a manager and giving a mandate of bringing you through. There was they're like what the germ what, uh, to use a German phrase when a manager is appointed is like a firefighter to put out the fire and that be that. And there was indecisiveness behind the scenes at the Dutch FA, and finally that's been put to rest now, which is a which is a good sign. But also the success of um, 2014 with the how well the likes of Ian Robin Robin van Persie. And the team ethic of 2014, which can which can be put down to Louis van Gaal, 
changing the formation to a 5-3-2, making them difficult to beat, having the bottle to change his goalkeeper in a quarterfinal for a deliberate penalty shootout. He also claimed he would have done the same in the semi-final had he not used all his subs, but he was convinced that they were going to win the match in 120 minutes. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. But 2014 for them to finish um, third was a real collective effort and the country was extremely proud. And as I say, there's signs of life now where the good players are being brought in deliberately. Kuman said himself when he was appointed, he signed a four-year deal, which he expects to see out at the very least. Mm-hmm. He's, had his, he's, had his, he's had his fingers burnt at club level. And it, the pride of him having the top job in the Netherlands, you can see in his press conferences how serious he is, how delighted he is to have his job. So it's we're on we're on the road now in theory what they should have been on in 2014. Better late than never. Uh, but uh, I, believe yeah. this, I believe that this will culminate in participation of Euro 2020 and hopefully a, a very good tournament too. Was there any talks after 2014 for Louis van Gaal to stay on, or was it? Uh, you know, obviously he he went on to manage uh, some some big clubs after that, but. Um, was there, was there, he was coming, uh, what was it from Bayern Munich? I believe he was at before. Then he goes to the Dutch national team. After that, he goes to coach on a coach, uh, or manage Manchester United. So was, was it, what was the decision ultimately? Was it just simply time for a change in 2014? Because it seemed like it was with, and I, I say this in regards to Yogi Löw with the German national team. He's been the manager now for over 10 years and he's had sustained success. Uh, uh, numerous semifinals, a World Cup final. Um, he's been he he's he's been to the very top of, of of the of the mountain, so to speak, and he's done so with constantly reloading his squad. If if someone ages, you know, he replaces a Schweinsteiger, he replaces a Philipp Lahm. He does this uh, with quick, rapid succession, and 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 more times than not, has come out um, you know victorious in that aspect. So. Was there any reason why why Van Gaal was not retained, or was it a decision on his part not to stay after 2014? It was a decision on his part because he was approached by Manchester United, and okay. he wanted to go. He, he stated on many different occasions, with his success with Ajax particularly, and with Barcelona, he, he did not hide the fact that he always wanted to manage in England. He had the opportunity back in 2003 when uh, Ferguson... Um, um, proclaimed his retirement only to change his mind and Van Gaal was approached by Manchester United even back then and when Manchester United approached him in 2014 he really wanted to go he was so determined to, to, be, to become a success in England and uh, I personally think he was a little bit unlucky I think he tried to do too much too soon at club level and he was only ever going to leave the post uh, of the Dutch national team manager Critty for a job in England and uh, that's what he did. But even history tells us now, you look back on his on his second period with the Dutch um, national team, it, it was a real success. He enjoyed every single minute of it, uh, even the qualification rounds where they would be winning 3-0, 4-0, 5-0 and, and, and beating teams within the first 30 minutes. He was uh, he was driven to, um, to take part in a major tournament and they ended up finishing third. And he often, he often looks back on the tournament as a missed opportunity. Uh, stating in the aftermath of what I just mentioned about what he would have done had, had he not used his subs uh, 
for the match in the semi-final against Argentina, but he wanted to go to England so much that he was only ever going to leave the Dutch national team for that, which he did. But the problems, the the, the failures to qualify for two major tournaments after that started with the incorrect replacement of Louis van Gaal. They had the, the Dutch FA, FA had a straight choice of Gusidink and Koeman, and they chose the wrong man, and it was like a domino effect. Which which led to indecisiveness, and it's only been rectified as of um, as of February this year. Um, so another question: uh, it, it, This is uh, you know, it's it's funny for the new the, the, this newer generation, the fans. You know, let's talk about kids from maybe twelve to eighteen. They they will unless you go back and you read the history books. Ruben Ball was a legend law two decades, two decades before he was the manager of the Dutch national team. He his Ajax teams from the 1990s are are stuff that books are written about and movies and films are made of. Um, that the 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 1995 team in particular was was just I mean you know you're, what can I say UEFA Champions League winners. Um, that team produced so many stars and and, and had so much firepower. It's um. It's just a shame, you know, how, how many, many newer fans or, or even people in their, you know, early to mid-20s, won't, they, would be, they would have been children or, or small, small kids or not even born at that point when, when Louis van Gaal was really a trendsetter in Europe at the club level, not at the national team level. And it's a shame that things didn't end well for him at Bayern or Manchester United. And that's kind of, you know, they always say your last performance is the one that you're most graded on. And, and you know, unfortunately, Jose Mourinho is finding that out right now as we speak. But... Um, yeah, Louis van Gaal is is uh, a one, without question a legend of this of this sport. Um, but speaking about Kuman, because you brought him up, um, based on how he was inauspiciously let go at Everton, what made the Dutch FA decide that he it was the right time for him? Because things did not end too well for him in the Premier League. Um, I think they were remembering the opportunity they had to. to to obviously there's certain board members still in the organisation that that knew of the um, potential appointment back in 2014, but he was he was the best candidate for the job. Um, if you go back in recent history, Critty as well. If you go back to Bert van Marwijk, who was um, who became Dutch national team manager in 2008 and led them to the 2010 World Cup final. When van Marwijk was appointed. He basically wasn't even interviewed because he was the outstanding candidate for the job and he wanted it, so he got it. And there was there there was always a a pattern of who is the outstanding candidate. Um, if he's available, we'll get him. And the 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 job is so prestigious that very 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 few people would turn it down. You know, you can't you can't turn it down a, a position that, that that is that prestigious. Right. Although I must I must say to the listeners as well, there was there was a short period before Kuman was appointed where the rumours were surrounding Thomas Tuchel, who's now at Paris Saint Germain, mm-hmm. where Dutch media in particular were were trying to push uh, for a foreign manager and uh, and trying to push for Thomas Tuchel. They, the, the Dutch media would go to interview Thomas Tuchel and ask him about overtures for the Dutch national uh, team job. But I, I'm just pleased that they that they decided to go with someone from their own from their own pool of talent because I believe at international level, that's extremely important. If you look back into many, many European teams, um, you know, in the past, like, for example, France with Deschamps, uh, Deschamps has wonderful experience at club level with Monaco, with Juventus, 
and he's in a wonderful job and with his experience he went on to become a world champion i um i recently interviewed um american international fabian johnson who plays for Borussia Mönchengladbach he yep. was telling he was telling me about the world cup that he had in 2014 with the united states and how much fun the squad had and how much Klinsman would tell the the squad to take every single opportunity don't be scared don't be frightened go out and play and they went on to reach a um, they went on to have a very good world cup they was in a difficult group and uh, containing uh, containing Portugal, which they managed to they managed to draw. Yeah. And uh, speaking to Fabian Johnson uh, recently, he was telling me that his memories about that tournament was just the pride, the pride of putting on the American shirt, and um, and Klinsman letting him letting him know that you know this is this, you're doing this for the people. And I think when you've got a national team manager that understands that, I think it, it can really transmit to the players. And I think with certain European nations that uh, for example France, Germany, Italy, Spain, they're fully aware of that, that someone from their own pool of talent can can really get that message across. And you also see now with different continents like Africa, for example, Christy, many many African nations were um would always appoint a foreign manager in order to, to get a high profile. But you see that the wheel is starting to turn now, where they're going from someone from their own country as a way of, of being able to relate to the, uh, relate to the players and be able to get their message across. And you'll see as time goes on, I think that will prove very fruitful indeed. Um, I saw recently in the past year, read Rude Gillett's book. Uh, it's entitled uh, How to Watch Soccer. Um, and he, obviously he's one of the, he's a little bit before my time, but um, <laughs> I only remember him like briefly at his, from his time at Chelsea as a player manager. But He's a, he's a Dutch legend. He's an AC Milan legend. His book was fascinating, and, and, and he talks about Koeman a lot in that being, you know, he was, he was very close with him, obviously, playing uh, in the orange kit together. I want to ask you and talk to you a bit about the possibly one of the greatest innovations in the history of the great sport of football, and it's because of the Dutch, and that is the term total football. He talks about this at great lengths in his book. Explain real quick what total football is and why it, it, it caught the world by storm, especially with the uh, Johan Cruyff generation of players. Well, it was it started by a group of players at club level all wanting to work together and take responsibility for the team winning on a regular basis and not being hung up on the position that they specifically play. Like, for example, when they're going forward and leaving space behind, another player will fill that gap. It's not just a case of um, of just going forward, leaving gaps in behind for the opponents to exploit. So there was a real awareness all over the pitch from front to back as to if one player is, if a defender, for example, is going up the pitch attacking, that a midfielder or even a defender will move to the left or to the right to cover his space. And it was a, um, a work in unison, really. People used to refer to it as like a clockwork over clockwork orange mm-hmm. in terms of uh, positions being filled on a regular basis at pace but you also have to remember that, that when this started out at the, at the national team the national team and also with IX as well you had a, a group of players that, that really got on well with one another and wanted to spend time with one another and wanted to help one another there was no egos there was no selfishness there was just um, obviously, they was aware that with Johan Cruyff, they had the best player in the world at that time, and he helped them 
reached the semi-final in 74 and okay he wasn't there in 78 but the the talent of, of Paul the talent they had at their disposal meant that they could go on to reach yet another final and uh, yeah it was just it was just a case of, of, of total tactical awareness and 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 not, and not being selfish in any way shape and form and it's it's a, to explain it too it's just kind of like uh, a, a left winger will then move in yeah. to be a center forward and a right winger will move back to yeah exactly so it's it, they're all it's it's all a, a, a massive working together like a, like a well-oiled machine uh, yeah. uh, and, and precisely knowing where the other person's going to be at the exact right time. Absolutely, but they, they, they were they were drilled on the training ground a lot, but also the combination of being drilled on a training ground every single day with people that you like and people that you respect, and if somebody gives you that piece of advice that they would take it on board. It wouldn't just be a, oh, I don't want to listen to you. It's no, he's talking to me. I want to listen to exactly what he's got to say. And you you saw the, the, the fruits of the loins in reaching two World Cup finals. And um, it, it wasn't meant to be, of course. And uh, the, the history may well have changed if one of them was uh, was to be won, but uh, I'm I'm sh- I'm sure they'll win it one day. But uh, chances uh, chances were not taken. Unfortunately, they went one nil up in that final in 1974 against Germany. And Willem van Harnagem as well, who also um, um, stated in the aftermath that when they were one nil up against Germany in that final, that they wanted to toy with Germany. It wasn't so much the let's get over the line. It's Let's toy with the with the big rival, the big arch rival, and then let's get over the world, let's get over the line and become champion. And obviously, with the Gerd Müller and the, the, the determination of Germany, they wasn't going to lie back. And uh, unfortunately, the events meant that uh, Germany went on to win the 1974 World Cup in their own country. Uh, a very very um, silly thing to do with Franz Beckenbauer, uh, you know, on, on the on the same team with, as you said, Gerd Müller, who is. Uh, the Bundesliga's single-season scoring leader with uh, 40 goals that one year. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that was uh, kind of foolish. But I want to say, you know, one of the things that Total Football did, the Ajax teams from that era, uh, talking about Johan Cruyff specifically, uh, they were the ones that broke down another tactical innovation of the game, which is the Catenaccio, the uh, Inter Milan, Grande Inter side, that basically had a lockdown defender uh, behind the back line, so this was a kind of a sweeper, if you will, and Catenaccio uh, kind of translates to literally the lock or, or, or to be locked up, and, and Total Football broke that system down. Uh, it was uh, two consecutive European Cup finals for Inter, which they both won in 64 and 65, and it was Ajax uh, that ultimately uh, spelled their doom as they as uh, they just took them off guard with Total Football. It, it was just such a uh, an unbelievable tactical innovation. Never before had the game seen the players work in unison uh, with such accuracy and precision. And uh, so many people and so many clubs and managers have copied off of that Dutch style. And, and Gillard also talks about the, of course, um, which is the Dutch tradition. We saw this uh, work for him at Ajax. I'm talking about, in this instance, um, uh, um, uh, uh, Bosch, Peter Bosch, was, was successful at Ajax with the 4-3-3 and tried to translate it at the Borussia Dortmund with the 4-3-3 and didn't work out as well. But that, 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 the 4-3-3 is kind of that, uh, it, it's kind of a staple of Dutch football, isn't it? I mean, it, it seems to work, though, better with the national team and perhaps in the Eredivisie than a lot of times uh, when these Dutch managers go out of their country and try to uh, implement that into, into a different league. 
Yeah, you you see as well that that with, for example, Frank de Boer was the the a same disciple of that when he uh, when he went abroad and he went into Milan and he went into a changing room pretty where he had no command of the local language, so he couldn't get his message across. And uh, shortly, I think uh, he was uh, re- relieved of his duties. I think within side two and a half months, seven, seven match days. Yep. Yes, yeah, and then also going to Crystal Palace. Obviously, he he could speak English well, but he went into a Crystal Palace dressing room, coming from Ajax as a manager, with young Ajax players coming through a system that they learn from a very very young age of playing the same way, where their their youth development is exactly that. It's youth development, not just on the pitch, but off it in terms of education as well. And uh, in the case of Frank de Boer at Crystal Palace. He was asking his Crystal Palace players to do things that they could not do, and uh, and that also um, that also led to his downfall a little bit. In the case of Peter Bus, uh, he was of a tremendous fit for Ajax, and he only left because it's not every day that Borussia Dortmund come for you, and he he needed time to adapt, and um, it was a, it was a tremendous fit for Ajax, you know, to re- for Ajax to reach a. Uh, a Europa League final against Manchester United. Amsterdam that night was a was a, a wonderful sight. Even people living in Amsterdam were received, uh, were, um, and and the local police were also sending text messages, telling people not to come to the city because the city is absolutely jam packed. You saw on the local public transport that instead of uh, people wearing a, a suit to work or wearing a a nice shirt or their work uniform. Everybody's wearing an Ajax shirt because they're playing in a in a European Cup final in uh, in Stockholm. And I think they suffered stage fright in that final. But it's um I think with Peter Boss as well. A, an interesting fact that listeners may not know is before he was at Ajax, he was uh, manager of Vitesse Arnhem, and um, they he had them playing some scintillating stuff. And he also managed to get uh, to get Hirokas Almelo to the Eredivisie for the first time in many many years. So he has he does have pedigree, and it'll be interesting to see uh, where he goes next. The latest rumours are that uh, FC Utrecht are hoping to contract him for next season, but I'm not sure if he's uh, if he's willing to sign for Utrecht. I think he might uh, he might hold out for a job in another country, perhaps. Uh- so, very interesting. Yeah, it will be interesting to see where he lands uh, because there's definitely some a, a lot of a lot of managerial prowess there. He just needs to find the right fit for him, and and, and you know, obviously the the club where he's at. But uh, a couple quick questions to wrap up the Dutch national team, and I do want to ask then a couple questions about the Eredivisie since we're talking about Ajax and PSV. Uh, w- one question I have is based on what you've seen at Liverpool this season. Um, how impressed with you are you uh, with Virgil Van Dijk, and is he the right man? Is he the right guy to lead this Dutch national team going forward? Is he uh, that that um, uh, the spark, uh, so to speak, and, and the general the general on the pitch that the Dutch national team needs in order to not it's not a lack of talent, but you need that voice. You need that uh, like Philip Lahm was for the German national side. You need someone to be able to speak up and be the captain. Is he the right the right man for that? Uh, I believe in the short term he is. Whether the long term, I think, I think the long term you'll see more players um, communicating with one another. I don't think you'll necessarily see one captain that can make the change. This is a new generation of Dutch players, 
And you can see with the national team at the, at the moment, with from front to back, for example, Patrick van Aanholt at, uh, at Crystal Palace is, is doing extremely well and is having a very good season. In the midfield with uh, Jorginho van Aldem and Kevin Stroutman, who I believe will get a new lease of life um, at Olympic Marseille because it's uh, such a huge club and he wanted a move and he's got what he wanted. But you also have Martin Deron, who plays for Atalanta, who was extremely unlucky uh, when he played for Middlesbrough uh, because he played very, very few games and he was he was cast off by many people as a, as a flop, if you like, but he's an extremely intelligent footballer. And you see now Atalanta, he's playing every single game. Atalanta playing some very, very good football. And with that type of intelligence on the pitch, it, it can only help. But I think I think going forward, I think I don't think they'll be hanging their hat on one specific captain to be the voice to, to pull them along the line. I think Koeman will uh, will state that it's all about the collective and it's the collective that will get them over the line. Excellent, excellent. Uh, and, and that's what a lot of people are, are hoping to see is that collective effort, not just uh, uh, the, the, the one guy. And because it's, it's always been the Dutch national team has always had a collective effort. And it seems like recently with the... the I guess you could say the, the this, this 2014 aftermath and, and what we've led up to now, the 2018, uh, with the lack of star power and the lack of uh, producing the, the players to replace those stars like Van Persie and Robin and, and, and those guys like we talked about, so Wesley Snyder. Uh, it's been on Van Dyke and uh, I guess his Liverpool running mate, Wijnaldum, because the, that's the big club. Liverpool FC is the big club. So, of course, those two names are going to draw a lot of attention just because of you know, like you said, a lot of these players playing for Atalanta, playing for uh, Middlesbrough, uh, Liverpool carries so much uh, clout and has so much, uh, um, you know, just a prestige behind it. So if you, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. And I think that a lot of people are just we're, we're placing a lot of pressure on BBD to be sort of the, um, the I guess, the, 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 the man who brings the Dutch back. Uh, but re- real quick... Uh, in, they've been the 1988 European champions. So the, truly the only thing missing from the resume of the Dutch national team is a World Cup title. As you said, one day they will win it. I do agree with that. They've been too close too many times. But in your opinion, in just one word, if you could say what is the biggest miss, was it 1974, 2010, or 2014? 2010 for me, personally. Okay. Uh, yeah, I would say 2010, Chrissy, because... Um, the the sad fact the fact sad fact for me was is that they were playing Spain in the final, and they'd done ever so well to knock out Brazil in particular and to be so solid from front to back playing some excellent football, and when it got to, and especially the semi final win against Uruguay which was a which was a tremendous result, but when it got to the final against Spain, after the Uruguay semi final something changed and it changed in the fact of they're playing Spain in the final and Spain with Del Bosque and David Villa and that wonderful, wonderful side with uh, tremendous passing ability and accuracy from front to back and a, a tremendous goalkeeper in Iker Casillas. But after Uruguay, but instead of focusing on their own qualities, it kind of changed from Marvek where to stop Spain, you have to kick Spain. And I'm convinced if they'd have just played their own game rather than concentrated far too much on on physically trying to stop Spain playing football, I believe they would have won in 2010. So that's why I believe that 2010 was the biggest miss. Very well. Excellent explanation there. Uh, For me, my favorite memory is actually against Spain. My favorite Dutch game I've ever watched 
was the 2014-5-1 thrashing of the Spanish National Society. That's kind of like the revenge game because they left off the 2010 World Cup playing Spain. They started the 2014 World Cup playing Spain. And Iker Casillas on that day got a, uh, a nasty dose of medicine from the, uh, from, from the orange shirts on that day. So that is, uh, that's, my favorite, that's my favorite recent memory of Dutch football. It's, it's one of the most impressive memories in recent times, but the fact remains, Critty, that it, it's Spain that have the star above the emblem on their shirt when they play. Agreed, agreed, absolutely. And not, and not the Netherlands. Yep. Uh, so, uh, moving on real quick, I want to talk really very quickly about the domestic league. Uh, 20, we could say 20 years ago, roughly, uh, we'll go back 20, if you want to make it an even 23 to go back to 95, you had a Dutch team to win the UEFA Champions League, that being Ajax Amsterdam. You have, uh, for many, many years uh, past that, up until, I think, 2004, you know, PSV Eindhoven, they would make some noise in the Champions League. They'd get there uh, to the quarterfinals or semifinals. What, what has happened to the Dutch League in the past 25 years, we'll go a quarter century, where it has fallen off so much so that now I don't even believe the champions get a direct qualification of the Champions League. I still think you have to qualify through the qualifying rounds to get to the, the actual group stage. You have that's to. Correct. Yeah, that's, that, uh, yeah, that's, that's correct. Uh, PSV had to dispatch with Barty Borisov to uh, ensure their place in the, um, in the Champions League group phase this season. And Ajax had to go finish in second domestically, had to go through three qualifying rounds. Three. Three. Oh, my goodness. Against, against Sturm Graz, Standard Liège, and Dynamo Kiev. They did, they did ever so well to get through. And it's a real shot in the arm that both um, Dutch clubs are now playing in the Champions League, both in relatively difficult groups. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that both will go on to stay in European competition after the, um, um, after the winter break. I believe that they will both at the very least qualify for the, for the Europa League. Um, I'm, I'm convinced by that. But the, 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 the current state of the league pretty as well is that it's, um, it's, it's a league which is an acquired taste. I've been watching uh, the league firsthand, watching Ajax firsthand and also interviewing players and managers who participate in the Eredivisie on a regular basis for the last two years, interviews and obviously watching firsthand for the last 12. The league is an acquired taste with an awful lot of technical ability and an awful lot of skill. But you see now that the Dutch FA have a... Have a, um, have a they've, they've deliberately made a decision whether the Dutch FA, they sit at the top of the pyramid and they like to look after their domestic clubs. And that means that all the domestic clubs that their book that their books and their accounts must be in the black and they must be in order. You can't live beyond your means. And what it means is that clubs are so wary and careful of their yearly budgets at which they have to prevent, present to the time for bay that choices of uh, potential managers that have been appointed by Dutch clubs or in terms of player purchases, it can in some cases be a little bit underwhelming because they're because if a club um, overspends and lives beyond, it, beyond its means here, they are threatened with sanctions. And if these sanctions are not heeded, the club will be stripped of their um, professional licence and put back into the amateur football. So clubs are very, very wary of this, especially of this, especially in this day and age. So you're seeing managerial appointments, especially this summer. There were six uh, vacancies in the Eredivisie that were filled in the blink of an eye. 
I was I was shocked. I I really thought that certain clubs would be um, would be targeting certain managers. Having spoken to managers such as Maurice Stein at Fever Venlo and Henk de Jong at the Graafschap and Robert Molinar, who used to play for Leeds, who's now managing uh, RDSA. I interviewed these managers and spoke to these managers and they have so much ambition to improve and, and go to a, a bigger club in the league and, and prove that they can be um, be a success or be touted to eventually go abroad. Uh, but in the case of the six vacancies that were that were filled in the summer, it was just it was just so quick. And there were a few strange matches where, for example, Willem Twey, who harbour ambitions of Europe of participating in Europe, uh, appointed Adri Costa, who was assistant at Willem Twey 30 years previously, to give you an example. So you see that clubs are now very, very wary, and that, that's reflecting on the pitch as well. Like, for example, um, Hedekles Almelo, who, who came up about 13 years ago to the Eredivisie for the first time in a long, long time, have appointed Frank Rodemuth, uh, who was heavily involved with the Dutch FA in a regional setting. And they've deliberately gone down the path of hiring very, very young German players from the third division and second division in Germany to bring them to the Netherlands. They're currently sitting fourth in the league, much to everybody's surprise. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, but it, it just goes to show that they've they've run a complete U-turn. But it's uh, we currently have a top a traditional top three of PSV having won eight out of eight with a, a goal difference of 27. We have Ajax five points behind uh, with 19 points, and final propping third place with 17. And it's a long old season, as we know only too too well. But there are a few. Uh, surprises most weeks, especially when the bigger teams go away from home. Is it is it a so is, does it come down to the fact that what was it just global football in general and the big spending of clubs as we entered the 21st century where the where the Dutch were not able to keep up? So basically, making a decision to say we're not going to be reckless spenders, we're not going to try and compete with. Barcelona, with Madrid, with Inter, with Manchester United, with Bayern Munich, with uh, you know these clubs, we're going to keep our books in the black. We're not going to go in the red. Was that a was that a, a obviously this these were all clubs that Ajax was beating in the '90s, in the '80s, in the '70s, and 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 something something happened between 1995 and 2005, and then 2015. The the league fell off. The 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 the, the gap between those clubs. I mean, if you if you if you talk about now, if you talk about 10 years ago, even uh, if, if Inter were playing PSV Eindhoven in the Champions League, you would say, well, that's a pretty even matchup. Uh, now everyone would favor Inter hand, nine, out of, nine out of 10 times. I mean, unless the match is in Eindhoven, you would always favor Inter uh, to win that simply because of squad depth and, and, and talent. I mean, Mauro Icardi is, 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 is an elite world-class striker. Uh, um, and, and, and that's something that... that um, is, is is hard to overcome, especially for what, what seems to be a, a lot of clubs that, that that feature much of the youth in their sides. They and then then when they develop this this youth talent, they go on to bigger and better things and 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 feature in the Premier League or the Bundesliga or Serie A. What what's why is why are the Dutch teams are they just making a, a, a um, these clubs making a a, a united. Uh, decision to say we're not going to overspend, we're not going to raise our budgets, we're not going to compete for these top name players. We will eventually, essentially, will be all the academy clubs. Yeah, well, the cl- obviously the clubs are bound by the uh, stipulations from the Dutch FA, where the kind of they 
prohibits spending beyond your means and making sure that your accounts match and being a club that's solvent. They also supervise clubs in terms of category, in terms of a, a rating. Uh, in the case of 1995, Van Gaal was in a position where, first and foremost, he's an Ajax fan. He would go and watch Ajax when he was a young boy, and now he finds himself managing the biggest club in his country as someone that's from Amsterdam. And he was in his element, and he found it, he found it very easy to, to, to mould players and to uh, and to select players and to identify players and these players went on with the education that he gave them among others to be ready for moves abroad you see now that it's young players are still going abroad at a very very young age but they're not necessarily making the grade straight away they're finding themselves in uh, in reserve teams or in um, in youth setups where where it's difficult for them to um well, it's difficult for them to 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 crack on and making it make an impression. I've I've interviewed many Eredivisie players in the last two years, and especially the ones that have come from the Ajax academy, such as Fabian Sporks, uh, Clado, who's currently the right back at Nakbreda. He was telling me about the education that he received, not just on the pitch but off it. You know that he was 17 years of age, and he was allowed, along with Christian Eriksen at the time, who'd only just arrived in the Netherlands, to go and train with the first team. And how much you know he was, how much confidence that gave him, and how that the youth policy, which the club, a lot of clubs, um, especially Ajax, um, like to undertake, is that is they're getting their players not just ready for life on the pitch, but also life off the pitch in the big wide world too. Is is Ajax Amsterdam the case in the not not not? I know they'll always. They will always compete for the Dutch uh, for the league title. That that's not that that's that goes without saying. But as as far as it goes uh, and concerns Europe, will they be basically the Dutch version of Nottingham Forest, where it all clicked for you know quite some time, and then because of modern football and the way that the game has gone uh, on, on a larger scale, they will they will never compete for a Champions League title again. Or do you see? The Dutch FA possibly loosening up one day. I mean, is it is it possible for a foreign investor to come in, such as uh, with Man City or something, and just and just give a club an influx of money? It would take uh, it would take an, an awful lot for the Dutch FA to change their rigid rigid stance. You saw with um, there's been flirtations with it. For example, uh, Milad Jordani at Vitesse invested a lot of money, and they went down the route of many many Chelsea loanees. Uh, a, a, an investor linked with uh, Rodi Yese, who harboured Champions League ambitions, who was shortly arrested after after purchasing the club or attempting to purchase the club. It would take uh, the Dutch FA to to go, to go away from their rigid stance, but it's all about, as in Dutch life, it's about being solvent. It's about being um, being able to cope. It's about being able to to always be in the black. I think. You also have to remember that recently Ajax reached the Europa League final not so long ago and lost to Manchester United. That That is a fact, but when that happened, Critty, a lot of people thought it would never happen. So it just goes to show that anything can happen in football. You saw they drew in Bayern Munich yeah. uh, last week. Uh, I'm confident they're going to reach the, the last 16 of the Champions League. I think PSV will end up in the Europa League. And um, it's it's not it's not completely impossible. I think the people that like to like to say it's impossible. I've, these were the same people that before Ajax went on to play that Europa League final against Man- Manchester United, 
those were the people who were uh, proclaiming that it wouldn't be possible but yet it happened so uh, as we know anything can happen in football it's 11 against 11 <laughs> if you've got if you've got a, a game plan I mean I, I was at the first European match of that season where they drew at home to Pauk Saloniki from Greece and there was one nil down after 30 minutes and I didn't think that I, I'm watching the eventual Europa League finalists uh, who will go on to play the final in May. That was the last thing on my mind. But given the draw they had, coming through a group with Celta Vigo, dispatching of Legia Rosso and uh, FC Copenhagen, and a wonderful semi-final against Lyon where they were they were uh, underrated throughout but went on to reach a final. So it definitely is possible. And you see now, I, I often state it on many European podcasts I do, obviously, about Dutch football, but also being a fan of European football too, I often say, Critty, that the biggest change, and people need to be aware of this as well, the, the last decade to 15 years, the, the, the gap between the seasoned European clubs that play Europe on a regular basis and the smaller teams is getting smaller and smaller and smaller every single season. These new teams coming up, which are not very well known, are so determined. They have fantastic coaching. They're not just in Europe to make up the numbers. They're not just representing their local city. They're representing their entire country in some cases. And it brings with it so much pride. And you see that if you, you only had to go through the Europa League qualifying rounds with a fine tooth comb and half of the teams that, that many people would have thought would have dispatched the these lower teams and gone on to play the group phase, that never happened. Mm-hmm. So it just, go, it just goes to show that the gap is closing in Europe and the yes, the very very highest level in the Champions League. That's that's a bridge too far. But as um, besides that, lots and lots of different things are possible for many European clubs, even Dutch clubs in this instance. I agree with you 100 percent that uh, it, it, anything in football can happen. You're absolutely right. Um, and that 2016 final was no fluke. I mean, they also had to get through a pretty tough FC Schalke from uh, the Bundesliga yeah. as well. So they, they beat some they beat some prominent clubs on the way to that final, and they lost to, obviously, one of the most iconic clubs of all time against yeah. one of the best managers of all time uh, in, in that final. So, you know, uh, with all that respect is, is earned, respect is given to that 2016 Ajax side with uh, Peter Boss. But the only thing that, that, as an Ajax fan, if I see this team reach the round of 16, which by the way, James, I agree with you, they will do. I think that Ajax will reach the knockout stage of the Champions League. Will, the only thing is, how will, they, how will they be able to build continuity, do you think? Will they be able to retain the players that got them there, or do you think they'll just get picked off by the Barcelonas and the Real Madrids of the world? Um, it depends. In the case of Frenkie de Jong and Matthijs Tillich, they're very, very young. But they're also extremely intelligent. And I think in the case of both players, that they will be very wary about the clubs that come in for them and the choices that they make. And I think that can only help Ajax. They're very young, but another season in Ajax will do them no harm at all. They don't, they don't want to find themselves on the bench. Like, for example, I interviewed uh, back in March this year, Philip Sandler, who was rated as one of the the best young defenders in the country playing for Pexwala. And he had the opportunity to go to the likes of Azad Alakmar and PSV Eindhoven. And he ended up signing for Manchester City. And I, when I interviewed him, he told me that when Manchester City came in for him, 
they sold the project to him so much and made it so clear that they wanted him to sign for the Manchester City that he, it was an offer he couldn't really refuse. But he, he's yet to feature for Manchester City. Right. And they, they also told him as well that he would be play, training with Sergio Aguero on a daily basis. And I can understand that that would be very, very, um, very, very attractive indeed. Mm-hmm. Also, also, the Moroccan um, international, Hakim Ziyech, is also a very intelligent footballer. There were rumours of a move to Roma, which didn't materialise in the summer. He also deliberately turned down Sampdoria when he was playing for FC Twente many, many years ago. Again, this group of players, should they reach the last 16, I think the the maturity levels of the players themselves as well, to know that they just want to play. And when they play, and when they play really well, it really is a joy to watch. I mean, I know that um, PSV have won all eight games so far, and Ajax are five points behind, but there's still uh, 26 matches of the season left. Of course. In many, many twists and turns ahead. But I think with the, with the group they have, and also the man, in the manager, Eric Den Haag, I think the players, when they are approached by certain clubs, I think they'll take that step back. I think they'll um, they'll try to uh, to summarise before making uh, before making the right decision. I hope in the case of Matthijs de Ligt in particular, because he's just he's just. I mean, I I watched him since he made his debut at the age of seventeen. To be so composed at that age and have the, the determination, the strength and the bottle to tell your fellow player exactly what they're doing wrong, even though your fellow player is maybe four, five, six, six years older than what, who you, what he is, but yet he has the, uh, the qualities to, to t- say what's going wrong and to cajole and to encourage. In the case of Matthias de Ligt, uh, Clitty, I really hope that he goes to a club that will look after him, where he will play every single week where he will be looked after, where he won't end up just playing domestic cup games and Champions League dead rubbers because that, uh, that would be a shame for his, ta- for his talent. I think it's uh, something like uh, the situation that uh, De Vrij has at Inter, for example, where he is, uh, he's fit into the squad seamlessly after leaving Lazio. And, um, you know, that's a, that, that, that would be something I, I think that maybe you're envisioning where it's, he's not only appreciated by the club, but... It's also it also gives him a chance to really really stretch his wings and and, and feature uh, you know properly. Yeah, in the case of De Frey, you see, he's always been an exceptional player. I mean, I'm an Arsenal supporter, and I often have the ambitions of Arsenal signing him one day. He's still only 26, so it might be possible. But in the case of Stefan De Frey, Kriti, he wanted to stay in Italy. He was so happy, especially off the pitch in that country. And I think there's something needs to be said for that because uh, although we're all fans of, of football and football teams and football clubs, uh, like anyone in life, when you're happy outside of your work or in the case of footballers, off the pitch, you know, with your lifestyle or your family, it, it says an awful lot. And I saw um, Stephen de Frey was interviewed by Dutch media upon his announcement of an inter, as an Inter player. And he, he couldn't reveal too much, but he was just saying how he deliberately wants to stay in Italy, how he enjoys the lifestyle when it's an opportunity to play Champions League football and improve even more. Wow. That, yeah, that's, yeah that, that's a, that does say a lot. And I mean, he's, he's, he's played top-level football in the Serie A for quite a few seasons now. And uh, as an Inter supporter, I, I, I wish him nothing but the best, obviously. And he's been a great addition to that team. James, I mean, this is fascinating stuff. I could talk to you about this stuff literally for hours. This has been 
outstanding. I'm so glad we finally got to get together on this and, and talk some Dutch football, Eredivisie, uh, Dutch national team, because they will always hold a special place in my heart just from the legendary teams that I saw growing up all the way through, as you said, 2014 with the, uh, the Dutch national team becoming uh, the second team behind Germany to beat Brazil on home soil in a major tournament like that. That's uh, no easy feat. Germany did it first, and a couple days later, the Netherlands followed up with a defeat of the Brazilians. So it's just they, they've delivered and pro- pro- provided football with so, much, so many great moments and so many uh, unbelievable uh, tactical innovations, uh, great players, great managers, uh, just – just fascinating uh, that this small country there on the Atlantic Ocean has has just been such a huge, huge uh, contributor to, to, to the global football scene. Mm, indeed, I, I fully concur. Well, uh, James, um, well, I'll let people tell, tell people real quick where they can find you on Twitter and uh, what you're working on currently. Okay, well, you can find me on Twitter at, at JamesRowNL. You can read my interviews on World Football Index and footballanu.com. I have interviews lined up with Patrick van Aanholt, who currently plays for Crystal Palace and is currently on international duty, as well as also the, the Dutch women's side. They uh, were victorious in Euro 2017. You can read some of my interviews with some of the stars of that winning triumphant team on footballanu.com. And you can keep an eye on the interviews that I have lined up with uh, different players and managers, mainly Dutch players and managers. But the wings are spreading now where I was fortunate to interview the likes of um, the former England under-21 manager Peter Taylor and uh, Danny Cowley from Lincoln. And I will also interview in the coming weeks uh, Killian Sheridan of Jagiellonia in Poland and uh, Richard Stearman of Sheffield United. So there's lots of... Uh, there's lots to read about. There's lots to lots to see and lots to do. And should any of the listeners have any questions about Dutch football in particular or European football in general, please don't hesitate to get in touch. Absolutely. I highly recommend James Rowe. It has been an absolute pleasure, my friend. Can't wait to do it again welcome. sometime soon. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, you're more than welcome. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And, uh, regards to everybody in the United States. Absolutely. Will do. Thank you, my friend. You're welcome. All right. Cheers. Bye-bye.